So we went on this trip, and uh, we just got back Wednesday night. Um, and, you know, we traveled uh, to, to Zion National Park, which is in Utah. So we landed in Las Vegas, immediately got in a, in a car and drove away from Las Vegas, right? Amen. Okay. Drove away from Las Vegas and went to Utah to Zion National Park for a couple nights uh, to go hike the, the mountains there and the cliffs and all that and got some wonderful, beautiful pictures and that sort of thing. And then after that, we hopped in the car again. We drove south to the Grand Canyon and we had never uh, seen, we've seen the Grand Canyon in pictures and video and stuff like that. And I was being prepared to be disappointed. But when I got in front, I, 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 folks, I've never had this kind of experience before. You know how they say, I just had a divine experience, right? Um, I always thought that was poo-poo, like that kind of thing. I was like, really? Is that what it is? And then you come up on it and you're like, oh, oh my gosh. The pictures don't do it justice. It was amazing. And then we got back in the car after a couple nights, and we drove to Las Vegas for, for one night just so that the kids could see what sin really looks like, And because um, <laughs> they don't see it enough around here, right? So anyway, so that's, that's what we did, and we had, just, we had a blast. But while we were at the Grand Canyon, uh, there were these warnings, right? And so we knew going to the Grand Canyon, in fact, one of the reasons we have not gone to the Grand Canyon sooner is because we were concerned about our, about our kids. Because, you know, kids are kids and they kind of run around and, and there's always some sort of, you know, nincompoop that's, you know, there that's running around and you never know what's going to happen, right? I mean, you might be a safe driver, but the guy in the next lane may not be. And so we were just concerned about that. But there were these warnings. Uh, so there, there was one sign that basically said, you know, uh, don't feed the animals. You, the elk will attack, okay? I'd like to see that, but they will attack. And then the next sign said, drink a lot of water. I mean, there's a lot of people having to be pulled out of the canyon every year because they don't drink enough water and they have heat stroke and things like that. But then there was this one sign, and I, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. It said something like this, don't be an idiot while taking photos. Stop trying to make yourself look pretty in that selfie. You're not going to look better in the Grand Canyon anyway, because there's a good chance you're going to fall into the canyon and we'll have to come get your mangled corpse. And we don't want to come get you because it's too hot. It was a big sign. It was a big sign. But you get the idea, right? It was that warning sign right there. And it was kind of funny. Lucas and I go forward and we're taking pictures. And I turn around and Crystal's like 20 yards back with Jackson. Like she's got like handcuffs around him and everything else because Jackson's just like this. I mean, all over the place. So you never know. He might fit through the gate, right? So it was a little bit terrifying. And so these, these signs were there to protect us. They were there for sensible people to read the sign and follow the instructions. It makes sense, right? It makes sense. Now, sensible people with common sense, they heeded those warnings. And those people were all over the place. They weren't feeding the animals. You could see them hydrating themselves. And they were taking pictures from a safe distance behind the bars. But then there were those individuals who eventually... They, they looked like us at first, behaving, but it's like their innate desires started coming out of them. It's like they just couldn't help themselves. And one dude was like sitting on the bar with a 4,000 foot drop behind him. He's like, hey, throwing up like peace signs and stuff in the picture. And Lucas and I both, but we were just clenching. You know, I mean, it was freaking us out. Now, folks... Two things. If one of those individuals had fallen, it would have been a heartbreaking experience. Really, really. I mean, some of us I know want to say, well, it serves them right. It would have been a heartbreaking experience. 
it would have also been a very strong lesson for everybody in their presence to see somebody not heeding the warning signs and falling prey. Now, this is kind of what I like in today's message to be. The author of Hebrews throughout the book is sharing warning signs. So we've been talking about the supremacy of Christ, right? We've been talking about he is our high priest, and we're going to be going back into that. But now we're kind of inching forward where the author is sharing some warning signs. Some very important warning signs that we need to heed as believers. Now, let me just be very clear up front, okay? As a good, strong, conservative, reformed Southern Baptist, I believe in eternal security. I believe it with all my heart. And eternal security is this. It's that when God saves us, he keeps us. He's not going to let us go. Folks, I also believe in the concept of apostasy. You've never heard me use that word before. In fact, you don't hear many preachers talking about it because this is a difficult concept. Apostasy, and we're going to talk about a definition, but generally speaking, apostasy is, or apostates are those who claim to be Christians only to fall away for good. That's what an apostate is. Someone who claims to be a Christian, but then falls away. Now, here's the thing. Those sound contradictory, but they are both in Scripture. Both of those concepts are in Scripture. So I cannot easily, like Thomas Jefferson, just start trimming away pieces of Scripture that don't make sense to me or they don't meld together. Folks, they don't contradict if you understand what the author and what God is doing in His Word. All right, And so we're going to walk through this pretty close because one of these is a promise and the other is a warning so that we will remain in that promise. Okay, So one, eternal security, that's a promise. Apostate, falling away, that or the danger of falling away, that is a warning to cause us to stay in that promise. I'll explain more here in a little bit. So, the author of Hebrews has been, has been in this middle of the proclaiming of the supremacy of Christ. And so, in our passage two weeks ago, before we left, um, he, he ended that verse with this uh, from chapter 3, verse 6. It says, And we are his house, and indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And what that basically means is this, is that we are part of God's house. We are a part of his people. We are a part of the people of God if we hold fast to Jesus or if we persevere. The counter argument to that is this. If you don't persevere, then you are not a part of God's house. It doesn't say you will not remain in God's house. It says you are not a part of God's house. So an identifying mark of a Christian is that they will remain and they will persevere, that they will persevere in life for the sake of Christ. Now, from that verse, now the author is going to explain himself. Because like us, the early believers would have been a little bit confused. They probably would have been a little bit confused at this. Maybe not as much as us, but there probably would have been some difficulty. And we know that because he goes into explaining this. So I want you to see this. The word if, there's a condition. We are his house or his people if we hold fast. Now, what the author is going to do 
in chapter 3 is he's going to reach back into the Old Testament and he's going to use Psalm 95 to explain his point. Now, folks, I need you all to listen very, very carefully this morning because this is very intricate. And if, and I'm just going to be very, I'm going to be brutally honest with you this morning. If you don't listen where I'm going with this, if you kind of zone out, you're going to catch back up like towards the last third of this message, and you're going to be like, is he just lecturing us now? That's not what I'm doing. I'm preaching, I'm teaching, I'm not lecturing. But I just I need to give you that kind of you know that heads up, really focus as we go through that. So I'm going to read chapter three uh, from verse seven to the end, and then I'm going to jump back to chapter ninety-five of or Psalm ninety-five, so you see where he's going. Okay, you all can remain seated. This is a long passage. Just kind of hang with me here. So he says, following verse six, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as is in the rebellion. For who were those who heard? and then yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter in his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you to be with us during this, uh, as, we, as I preach this message, Father. Uh, be with me, be with the congregation, Father. And I pray that through this difficult uh, topic that we, uh, we, we uh, garner some sense of this and it causes us to rejoice in the work of Christ. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, so, so if you notice there, the author is quoting some of Psalm 95. He actually quotes the end of Psalm 95. I think it's important for us to know the whole psalm before we get into this. And so uh, basically what he's doing is he's explaining this concept of falling away using Psalm 95 as the example. So let me read that to you because really what's happening is he's describing two different types of people. Here's Psalm 95. Here's the first type of person or somebody who has a heart of worship, an orientation towards worship. Starting in verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands 
form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our, the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound wonderful? Isn't that the place where we want to rest, where we are on our knees or standing on our feet with our hands raised, praising the God of the heavens for who he is and what he's done? That's one orientation of a heart. We see where God has worked and we in humility bow before that kind of God and say, you are worthy. You are worthy. There is nothing that this world can throw at us that will change the fact that God is worthy. On your darkest, most painful day, God is still worthy of your praise. That is why Paul can say rejoice even in suffering. Because even in your suffering, God is still worthy. I could go on and on and on of missionaries from the past who suffered in ways that you and I will hopefully never suffer, and yet they still rejoiced in the Lord. Did they weep? Absolutely they wept. They wept. Did they get angry? Absolutely. Did they get frustrated? Absolutely. Did they rejoice? Absolutely. So that's one orientation in the heart. But then the author of, of the psalm comes back and says there's another orientation. So this is the orientation that a believer, that a Christian in the church should be. But then he says this, he throws out a warning. And this is where the author of Hebrews picks up, starting in verse 7. It says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that's what the author of, the, of Hebrews is picking up. He's picking up that in there and he's using the Israelites in the wilderness to explain what a hardened heart looks like. It is an individual who is experienced the, the, the common grace of God, the work of God in their lives. They may have even participated in that, in that work. Think of Judas, if you will. But then they fall away because their heart is hardened and they have been deceived by the, the deceitfulness of sin. They fall away and they are condemned. In fact, in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 3, he says, For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Imagine this. Thousands of Israelites under the, under the hand of an evil Pharaoh in slavery have been pulled out of that enslavement by the mighty hand of God. It could only be the mighty hand of God. That's the point of the ten plagues. The point of the ten plagues was not, was not because the Pharaoh couldn't be defeated with nine or eight or seven. It's to show that only God is in charge. God is going to get the glory from this work. 
They see this work, they pull them out, and not, not before you can blink, they're creating a golden calf. Not before you can blink, they are muttering and being frustrated and arguing amongst themselves and bringing shame upon the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'd be mad. It's kind of like, you know, if one of my children, you know, throw a fit, we've, we've, we've given them all this fun stuff to do this day, all this, they've got to experience all these wonderful things this day, and at the end of the day, they say, hey, now go read for about 30 minutes in your room. I ain't doing that, and they throw this massive fit. Do you see what I've done for you today? Just go to your room for the next week. Leave me your mom alone. All right. I mean, seriously. And then here we have God is saying, you are not going to enter my rest. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt and led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They did not believe. They looked like they were part of the party, but they did not truly believe. Now, thankful for us, there was a remnant. Thankful there for us, there was a remnant who did believe. So this morning, using that passage as an explanation, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to walk you all through this idea of how we can be eternally secured and assured of our salvation, but also fear the sin of apostasy and how those two things work together. So my job is to teach you, and I'm going to teach you, I'm, I'm just going to tell you by frightening you. And, excuse me, if, if you believe that this can't happen to you, then you need to be doubly frightened. You need to be doubly frightened. Remember that Judas was one of the twelve. And remember, Judas was walking hand in hand with Christ. Remember, Judas was performing miracles that you and I will never perform. And his bowels spilled out in his sin. So what I want to do this morning is I want to hold up these signs of Scripture that scream, stay away from the edge so you don't fall in, all right, so you don't fall away. And I absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God and that when He saves you, He's going to keep you. And that part of the way that He does that is by these warning signs. He's throwing these warning signs at you to prevent you from going over the cliff. And true Christians will heed the warning signs. Unbelievers will not and they will fall. So the first, and we're going to move pretty quick because this is a long passage and I don't want to keep you all from your Father's Day lunch, but this is important. So just kind of chill out. Uh, is, if it's a little bit hot in here, can we, can we adjust the temperature? I know that there's, there were some people fanning. Maybe it's just me. I'm just hot. Okay. All right. The first one is this. Apostasy is unbelief. That's what apostasy is. It is unbelief. The definition by the Gospel Coalition is very helpful. It says, apostasy is decisively turning away from the faith. This is not accidental. It is decisively. It is purposeful. An apostate is a person who once claimed to be a Christian, but has irreversibly abandoned and renounced Orthodox Christianity. 
And in fact, the author says in Hebrews 3.12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And at the end of chapter 3, he says the reason why the people of Israel fell away was because of their unbelief. Apostasy is unbelief. That's what it is. Even if you look like a believer, you don't really believe. And that's a scary, scary concept. It's like in Matthew with that story that Christ tells about us facing God. And and he says, didn't I do all these things? And he says, I never knew you. Folks, that's terrifying. That is terrifying. So I want to mention two points here. First, the first point to note is this is that falling away or apostasy is a direct result is a direct result of of an evil unbelieving heart. Okay? So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to provide just a little of assurance. Apostasy or falling away is due to an evil unbelieving heart. Now, here's the assurance to this. It's not going to sound assuring, but it is. All of us before we are in Christ have evil unbelieving hearts. And you may say, no, I was a good kid. I, I don't doubt it. By the world standards, sure. What we mean by that is we're, we were nice, we're kind, we help others, you know, we, we pay our taxes, even if we're late, you know. I mean, we do those kinds of things, right? That's not what we mean. What we mean is by God's standards, we have an evil, unbelieving heart. What does Paul say? He says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, quoting Psalm 14. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Oh my gosh, this is sitting in a corner in the dark, right? But that's the truth before we are saved. We have unbelieving hearts, evil, unbelieving, unrepentant hearts, that's who we are before Christ. That's what it means to be totally depraved. We don't want anything other than sin. We delight in it. The author is describing a lost person, an unbeliever. But the second important point is this, is that when we are saved, we are given a new heart and a new creation. And here's the assurance. Here's the assurance that if you've been given a new heart, you will not fall away. What does it say in Ezekiel? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, uncleanness bleh, and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This new creature has been created again by God and for God, and he is not going to allow you to fall away. He's not going to allow you to fall away. And one of the ways that he's going to prevent that is by throwing all those warning signs up. That's just the way God does. Let me use one other example real quick, tying into the sovereignty of God. If God is completely sovereign, this is what I hear, if God is completely sovereign, even over our salvation, if God chooses us before the foundations of the earth, which you know I believe and I've taught on many, many occasions, then why does missions and evangelism even matter? Why do we do it? Well, here's why it matters. Because God told us to do it. 
Missions and evangelism is the means by which people are going to come to Christ. It's the method. And so one of the methods that God uses to prevent us from falling away, to becoming apostate, is by throwing these warnings at us. Folks, this should terrify us. If this is not going to keep you away from the edge of a cliff, I don't know what will. Those who fall away demonstrate that they were never a part of the house to begin with. As John says of Antichrist in 1 John 1.19, they went out from us, but they were not with us, of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. That's a perfect example. That's what we're talking about. They weren't really of us. You all have seen this. You all have seen individuals who were energized for Christ for about a month, six months, a year, a couple years, and all of a sudden, I, I can't handle the seriousness of sanctification. I can't handle the seriousness of discipleship. I cannot stand when that pastor starts preaching and he picks on my sin. And so they leave. So apostasy is unbelief and apostasy is deadly. So if eternal security is real and we can't fall away, then why does the author of Hebrews talk about it? Well, it's for these warning signs. It's like those signs at the Grand Canyon. If Crystal and I had been going by ourselves, it is very likely that we would have traveled down into that canyon. Now, folks, if you've never been there or done that, let me just tell you that as you go down into the canyon, you have about, oh, five feet or less between you and sudden death. Well, it's not sudden, you know, gravity and all that kind of stuff. There's about a 3,000 foot fall, but we would have probably gone down there because we're pretty confident in our, in our stability and stuff. But we had an eight-year-old that's squirrely. Yeah, I'm talking about you, Jackson. Okay, he's squirrely all over the place. And our teenager is constantly looking through the, you know, through the, the camera lens. And so you never know what's going on. So we were kind of terrified with all that. So we didn't do it. But here's the deal. All right. We see these warning signs and we heed them. Not everybody does. Those signs reinforce our fears. Falling away is deadly. Lostness is death. And so here's another sign that Paul uses. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love it when Paul shares the consequences of sin, but then he immediately gives you the remedy. He immediately gives you the remedy. Hey, you are lost. You're in sin. You're going to die. But Jesus, but Jesus, he doesn't leave you hanging until the next week, right? Like sitcoms do. So we will be looking more carefully at this uh, in the coming weeks uh, to provide this assurance because he goes all the way into chapter six with this. Uh, but this is a warning to help us persevere. And these statements in Hebrew concerning apostasy are meant to warn or even frighten believers. So when we see former pastors, deacons, prominent members of churches leave the faith, it frightens us. So here's the thing. If we had seen somebody fall into the canyon, we can read about it happening, but then when it happens in front of us, it's like an object lesson. Oh, that could happen to me. That could happen to me. It terrifies you. When we see pastors, deacons, prominent members of the church fall away from the church, and I've seen this personally, it's a jar to the system. It's a jar to the system. And it starts by disassociating yourself with the body of Christ. 
And then it continues by hanging at home on Sunday mornings and like, oh, I'll just watch it on TV. And then you stop watching it on TV and you start, disassoci- you start disassociating yourself with all believers at all and then just start associating with the world. And it just kind of goes down this path. We need to be very careful with this. The comfort is knowing that if we are in Christ, we will persevere, not due to our inherent goodness, but because of the power of God. So here's the final point. So I want you to hang with me. How does God intend to prevent this from happening? How does God intend to prevent this from happening? Now, folks, I'm just going to tell you right now, this is where I hope you've been listening this entire time, because if not, this next point's not going to make sense, and it's going to sound like I'm lecturing, because we're going to start talking a little bit about current events. I'm not a politician. I'm not going politics. We are going to start talking about a little bit current events, and it's going to get a little bit uncomfortable, possibly. But I want you to hang with me. And I want to tell you before I start that I love every one of you. you and I think you all know that. I think, I think this is not the type of sermon you'd preach on your very first week, just so you know. You kind of have to build up a rapport with folks so they know where your heart is. So I hope that you know where my heart is as we begin this. So just hang with me. Hebrews 3, 13 through 14 says this, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see that perseverance again. You see that it's important to hold that confidence to the end. So we see that the culprit in hardening of the heart is sin, and specifically the deceitfulness of sin. And what I believe that he means by that is this. By deceit is that sin deceives us in believing that, our, that we can be delighted and be filled with more joy in our sin than in Christ. That our sin will bring us more joy than Christ. I mean, seriously, why would we choose sin if it is less enjoyable than Jesus? Well, that's what you do when you're an unbeliever. Because you have been deceived by sin. You've been deceived by it. Many people buy into this. And this causes us to coddle sin. We've talked about this. Coddle, pursue sin, accept sin, tolerate sin in ourselves, family, church, and culture. And by the way, sin is not just individual, it's also corporate. A church can be sinful. Look at Revelation and Laodicea. Churches can be sinful. Communities can be sinful. Culture can be sinful. So we must, in the church, be people that are earnestly seeking to kill sin individually and corporately. But what I see, now listen to me here, I see too many people kicking sin like a can down the road, thinking that I'll kick it far enough down the road that it won't affect me or catch up with me. Another shot of whiskey won't lead me to a habit. Another hit off a joint won't cause a problem. A secret meeting or phone call with a mysterious man or woman can't hurt my spouse if she doesn't know or he doesn't know. Checking out that website after my parents or wife go to bed won't hurt anyone. Right? We start deceiving ourselves because we like it. We like it. Or, hear me here, The sin is just too uncomfortable to address, especially in public. We refuse to address it. We refuse to get help. We refuse to talk about it. And folks, this is why I believe that racism is still so prevalent in the church. 
I told you I'm not a politician. I'm not talking about politics today. I'm not talking about any uh, movements. I'm not talking about any protests. I'm not talking about police brutality. That is not what I'm talking about today. That's for other people smarter than me and that are more informed than me in the culture and in society to talk about. I'm not going to get into those discussions. All right. I'm not going to talk about what a police officer should or should not do. Melvin, uh, who is defending us at this moment out here, uh, he can tell you right now that I was on the phone with him this past week talking to him. I just wanted to know the life of a police officer because I don't know. I have many friends who are police officers, but I'm not one. And so I just wanted to know how should I evaluate this police officer and all that's been going on. So that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about sin as it creeps up in the church. Now you may say, it's not really in the church, folks. I can tell you from first-hand experience that it is in the church. And it starts small, which many sins do, and it destroys. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to try to be as nonspecific as I can. But when I was younger, a church was hiring a new secretary. And as typical churches do, what do they do? They have a business meeting and they get together and the head deacon gets up and shares the resume of that secretary. Folks, the resume of that secretary, that person, she did not need to be at our church. She needed to be somewhere else because her resume was good. She was overqualified to serve at our church. So he goes through that and we're all, we're all Amen. Can we vote now? I want to get to the snacks after after the meeting, right? And one individual, another deacon, stands up and says, I believe that we should be completely transparent and inform our people about this secretary. And now, I'm clueless. I don't know what to talk about. I'm clueless. And so a little discussion happens front. Now, to the credit of of the head deacon, they said this, we are not going to talk about that because that matters not for this discussion. And he shut it down immediately. Well, now what does that do? Causes everybody to be curious what's going on. Oh my goodness. Does she have two heads? Is she a felon? All these things. Folks, she was a person of color. And they knew that by knowing that the church might make a different decision. And that seems small to some of us. That caused a rift. It's this little like deceptive rift for a long time. For a long time. Now, If we can't remove the stain of racism in God's church, do we really have any hope in a Christless culture? We don't. We don't. I have heard some people say, just stop talking about it. If you stop talking about it, it will go away. And here's what I want to ask you. How well does that work for other sins? It doesn't. It doesn't work. I'm just going to ignore it. It doesn't work, folks. We must talk about it. 
We must discuss it. We must engage one another. Sin festers in silence. I actually believe that some individuals don't believe that racism is actually a sin. I actually believe that. I believe that some people think that, well, it's just sort of like an opinion. It's not. It's a sin that goes all the way back into Scripture. We see them talking about it in Galatians in the New Testament. They just don't call it racism in there. Sin just doesn't go away from silence. Now, I will tell you this. The effects of racism may go away for people like me and my wife and my two boys. But it is not going to go away if we're silent about it and don't address it for brothers and sisters in Christ who are of color. It's not going to go away if we keep our mouths shut. Now, let me throw one other thing. Now, here's where you're going to think I'm lecturing you, and I'm not. This is pastoral care. That's what this is. I earnestly believe that one of the ways that we beat out all sin is by exhorting one another, as the author of Hebrews calls us, by holding one another accountable, by loving one another. Folks, those are phone calls. Toya, how often have I called you and Melvin over the last five weeks, right? Always. Am I getting this right? Do I see this correctly? By the way, let me notice who I'm calling. I'm not calling somebody outside the church. I'm not calling a sociologist. I'm not calling a professor. I'm calling someone who loves me and I love them. They know where my heart is. And we're just having an honest discussion. Conversations happen in intimate settings around dinner tables at church. Or, I mean, those places. They don't happen on Facebook. They don't happen on social media. You might notice that I've been exceptionally silent on this issue. And it's on purpose. Nothing I say is going to help anybody on Facebook. It's what I say in here that might become of assistance. Because all that social media is is a bunch of clamoring symbols. Because here's what happens. You say, you say your opinion. You know who's going to agree with you? Everyone who already agrees with you. And by the way, I'm talking about all sides of this equation. You're not mediating anything through that. Pick up the phone. Call someone in your church and have an honest conversation. I liken it to this. If you believe the world is flat and you want to discuss it and be challenged with that, don't go talk to somebody else who believes the world is flat. Talk to somebody who has a different opinion, who's not just going to be a yes person, who's going to reinforce your current beliefs. Be challenged. You may not agree, and that's okay. And here's why, and this goes straight into what Scripture says here. It's because we are not united in that, in these cultural movements and things. We're united in the gospel. That's what unites us. So we can disagree, not like that, like we can disagree, all right, on issues and still love one another. So we can persevere with two ways, unity in Christ and corporate fellowship. So it says here in this passage, we have come to share in Christ. This implies that individually we must be found in Christ and corporately united in Christ. We will never overcome individual sin without Christ. Meaning, if you are an unbeliever, you will not overcome your sin. 
This is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing. Jesus has to be the Lord of your life. And here's the thing. You are not going to overcome corporate sin unless you are united in Christ together in that one message. It's not possible. As the church, we do not trust in politicians. We don't trust in movements. And we don't trust in social media blitzes to root out sin. They can be helpful. There are places where they can be helpful. And they can also be, and we've seen this recently, very destructive. The church trusts in the gospel. And the second is this corporate fellowship, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. John Piper once said that perseverance or eternal security is a community project. It's a community project. We do it together. We do it together. We can't do this Christian life alone. We need our Christian brothers and sisters, every one of them, to accomplish this. We need our brothers and sisters to encourage us when we are downtrodden, to pray for us at all times, to confront us when we are in sin, to teach us truth, and to share our burdens. Now, folks, this passage I am reading from is not about racism. It's not. If I were simply teaching the text, we probably wouldn't go into all this. I would just teach you the meaning of the text, and we would go on. But I'm not teaching, I'm preaching. I'm exhorting you based upon the situation we are, have before us today. We are faced with it. It would be, I would be a very poor pastor if I just ignored this. I'd be a poor pastor, especially considering we have such a diverse congregation. It would be unloving. Because this passage does concern sin, and the sin of racism is that which is up front and center. And ignoring it will not make it go away. We need to have these real conversations. I, I, let me just encourage you. Let me just encourage you. Before you post the next thing on Facebook, or before you go you know, to your group... And by the way, just so you'll know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I haven't posted anything on Facebook about this situation. Um, I've done that before with others, so I'm not like guiltless in this. So please don't think that I'm lecturing from a place of, of like high and mightiness. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is this I'm exhorting you that before we talk about things on Facebook and talk at one another, that we that we talk with one another. That we talk with one another. Me and Toya were talking about this. I told Toya this morning, I said, Toya, I said, I don't know your experience. I will never know Toya's experience. I'm a white man. She is an African-American woman. I will never know her experience. I will never experience her experience. Here's the flip side to this. We don't talk about this much. She will never know mine. She will never experience how I feel. That I may have feelings about all this that are dear to my heart because of my background. But we will never be able to be united with one another if we don't talk about it. If we don't discuss it. In unity with Christ. So let me encourage you to do that. Let me encourage you with, 
with everything that's in me to do that. And folks, it may be uncomfortable at first because talking about any sin is uncomfortable. And so that's why we don't talk about it, because it's uncomfortable. You know what's really funny? That's the same reason why we don't share the gospel, because it's uncomfortable. That's why many of us don't share the gospel, because it's uncomfortable. And we don't want to get shot down or talk about it with somebody. And so it seems that comfort is the idol which prevents us from calling out sin while also preventing us to acquire the only thing that can remedy us from sin. It's that idol of comfort. I just don't want to be uncomfortable. Let's just forget that it even is here. Let's just keep kicking it down the road. I'm not going to talk to that person about Jesus because I'm sure somebody else will. I'm not going to talk about him because I'm sure David will. David talks to everybody. He probably has their phone number. I mean, seriously, you know what I'm saying here? Have a conversation. Do not, do not expect somebody else to pick up the slack. As a believer in Christ, we are called to this. So how do we respond? Simply, repent. I don't mean just of racism. I mean of sin. Repent. Repent of sin. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Don't kick it down the road, folks. Don't kick it down the road. Repent of sin. Put it to death. Believe that the grave is empty. Believe that the old, in the old rugged cross. Believe that the gospel is enough. Believe that his word is truth. And believe that his word is still relevant for today. Because it is. And the second is this. Worship individually and corporately. If we are sacrificing corporate worship, then we will never be united in Christ. We never will. And these issues that I'm talking about, racism and other sins, will never be healed in the church if the church isn't gathered. We need to work. It is very hard to hate somebody or to be prejudiced of somebody when you are standing side by side worshiping the same God. I've been mad at people before. It is really hard to stay mad at somebody when you're both in worship together, when you're at communion together, when you're praying together. It's difficult, folks, because that's the way the Lord works. Pray for reconciliation. Pray that people would be saved. And so let me just finish with this. I could not care less if the South rises again. I don't even know where that comes from. That's kind of a stupid phrase. But the church must rise. The church must rise. If you are putting your faith in a politician, in a movement, in some sort of cultural endeavor, you may make a lot of noise. You may make a lot of impact. Some of it may not be healthy. But there will be no healing The only healing is going to come from Christ. And so chase after Jesus and let us do it together.